Esther chapter 3, if you'll turn there. Book of Esther, the Old Testament, chapter 3, we're going to pick it up at verse 1. We do have a holiday weekend coming up, Labor Day weekend. Marks the end of the traditional summer season, and it um, goes by fast, doesn't it? And so um, I know some will be traveling, some of you will be gone, and, um, but we'll be here for those of you uh, are going to be around, and we're going to continue in our study of John's Gospel. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 7 and move into chapter 8, and we're going to be studying and looking at the familiar story of the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. So come out and join us. Bring somebody out on Sunday morning, 8.30 and 10.30 are our service times. We've got a number of things that will be going on in September. You've got a bulletin. Take a look at it, and, um, and um, we'll have some more that are coming up in September, more events and things happening here at Calvary Chapel. And we make sure that uh, you know about that as we have the bulletin. Always, uh, you can look on our webpage, calvarychapelgreeley.com as well, uh, where we try to keep that updated. So um, heading out of August into September and, um, and heading into the last part of the year. So 10.30 and 8.30 Sunday morning as we continue um, in John's Gospel. Let's get into our study of the book of Esther, chapter 3. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. You recall that as we looked at chapter 3 and began to look at it, that Haman is the last main character that we um, are introduced to in our study of the book of Esther. We, we've looked at chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Haman, we're going to see, is, is the bad guy. Matter of fact, what we're going to see of Haman is Haman is the one who's a picture, really, of Satan. So this chapter here, as we go through it, is going to have some very important implications for us even today, uh, why we see some of the things that happen today. So what I pray is that tonight, um, particularly as we get to the end of the chapter, we're going to go over a number of things that um, will help you understand why we see some of the things that are taking place here, in, in, particularly in the Middle East, concerning Israel. And um, so we're going to have to put our thinking caps on a little bit, and I'll try to cover it as best that I can so we can understand why it is that we see the things that we see and why there is such upheaval, particularly towards Israel today. And so, Father, as we go through this text, um, through this chapter, we see that this is a true story that happened 2,500 years ago. And we want to not only see the implications, but we want to make application for us as well today. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Um, we want to be attentive. We want to be paying attention. Uh, we want to uh, just receive from you the things that you want to show us and teach us here tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, again, as we open up chapter 1, this is a story that took place 2,500 years ago, 478 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire is ruling the known world. It is the major power um, that extends all the way from India through the Middle East into northern Africa. It extends over 127 provinces, and it is a very wealthy uh, empire as well. And at this time, Ahasuerus, or also known as King Xerxes, he is ruling, and you recall in chapter 1, for six months, he had the leaders from the different provinces come and meet with him. 
and he, he would show them the wealth of the empire. He met with them, had this you know, big uh, feast for six months, 180 days that they are with him. And actually, we know that at that time, he's gathering the leaders because he wants to get their support as they would go to war against Greece. Greece at this time is a merging power, and he wants to avenge um, this battle that his father lost to the Greeks. And so he is trying to get support for that. And then he has a party for those in the Susan, the citadel, the capital, for a whole week. And they're drinking all the wine that they want. They are drinking it out of golden cups. And so here is a man, a king, who is showing off his wealth, everything that he has. And in chapter 1, when his heart was merry, in other words, he was in a drunken state. He's hosting, you know, his friends. They're having this big feast. They're in the capital. He has one more thing that he wants to show off, and that is the queen. So he asked Queen Basti to come out wearing her royal crown, and the implication is, and as most Bible scholars uh, tend to agree, that he was asking her to come out in a very immodest way, asking her perhaps to come out uh, in, in with nothing on but the royal crown. And whatever it was that he wanted her to do, Queen Vasti said, no, I am not going to come out. I am not going to be immodest. I'm not going to come out um, in this manner that you want me to, to you and your drunken friends, uh, King Ahasuerus. So he was very furious about that. He was upset. He was uh, embarrassed. He was humil humiliated in front of his uh, guest that he was hosting. And so he, out of his anger, makes this decree that the queen is no longer uh, Queen Vasti going to come before him. Uh, her position is going to be given to another. So last week we went over chapter 2, and in between chapter 1 and chapter 2, as the story begins to unfold, that four years takes place. And in those four years, King Ahasuerus, he gathers this huge army, he goes against the emerging and rising Greeks, and he has this big battle with them. And even though Ahasuerus, uh, that the Medo-Persian Empire would win that battle, it took a heavy toll on them. It took a heavy toll on the number of men that were killed. And the Medo-Persian Empire, they were ones that were known for huge armies. And they would put together an army of a million men or two million men, which was very, very large back in ancient times. As a matter of fact, Daniel, before this, when he was prophesying and seeing a vision concerning the Medo-Persian Empire, even before they came into power, he saw them in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel as a bear, a bear that's powerful and big and kind of lumbers along. And, and that's what you know a bear symbolizes. And that was the Medo-Persian Empire unlike the Grecian Empire that would eventually take over the Medo-Persian Empire, and they were like a leper, very fast and, and very quick. And that was led by Alexander the Great, who had small armies. Sometimes his army was only like 35,000 men, but they moved very quickly and they struck very quickly. And Alexander the Great moved across the known world and um, at a very young age. So that's what we see is taking place in chapter 2. He comes back. He's kind of a defeated man. It took a toll on the empire economically as well. 
And so he remembers Vasti as we open up chapter 2 after these things. The wrath of the king had subsided, and he remembered Queen Vasti. What exactly does that mean? We're not sure, but probably he missed her. So what the uh, counselors of the king, uh, what they do is they come to him and say, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to gather all the young virgins in the empire, bring them to you, and they'll be in your harem, and then you're going to, out of one of them, pick who the next queen is going to be. So he liked that. And in chapter 2 last week, if you're with us in our study or have read the book of Esther, you know that we are introduced to two other main characters, and that is Mordecai in verse 5, uh, who uh, is a Jew. He, his family was taken off into captivity by Babylon. But there's Mordecai, and then his cousin Esther, he had raised her like his own daughter because Esther, that's her Persian name. Hadassah is her Jewish name. Her parents were dead, so Mordecai had raised her, was a father to her, and they came along, and Haggai, who is the, the chief of the eunuchs, took her, and she was there uh, with him uh, under the custody of Haggai, as verse 8 says. And I think it's important for us to note that because here's Esther. She was very beautiful. She was young, and she was taken by, you know, um, the, the king and, and by the eunuchs, and she was put into their custody. She didn't have any choice. And all these young virgins that were taken throughout the empire were taken, and they didn't really have a choice to say, no, you know what, I don't want to be a part of your contest. I don't want to be in this. They had to go. So Esther, who is Jewish, of course, she is taken, and then we ended last week with chapter 2, seeing that Esther, uh, that she pleased the king more than any of the others. God's hand is on her, and she becomes the queen. And so there is another great feast, and the Feast of Esther and we see that Mordecai, he ends up being advanced. He's at the king's gate, and he warns the king of a plot to have him be killed. He says, hey, these two guys that are gatekeepers, uh, he told Esther, Esther told the king on behalf of um, Mordecai that this you know, plot is to kill you, and those two guys would be hung on the gallows, and it would be written in the Chronicles. Now keep that in mind as we continue through the book of Esther's. So now as we move into chapter 3, here's the last of the main characters that is introduced to us, and that is Haman. We know that he's a descendant of Agai, who was an Amalekite. And we ended last week talking about who were the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the ones that would do battle with the children of Israel out in the wilderness. They were the ones that would sneak up on the rear of the children of Israel and pick off the, the weak and, and the young, and um, they really were a problem to the children of Israel. We know that in the Old Testament, that in the book of Exodus, it tells us how that Joshua went to battle against the Amalekites, and there was Moses up on the hill, and he had his hands raised, and as long as he had his hands raised, the children of Israel were winning. But if those hands went back down, 
then the Amalekites were winning. And we know that it was two individuals, uh, Aaron and Hur, that came along and they lifted up the hands of Moses. You know that story. And then the children of Israel would win that battle. And the Amalekites, as we discussed last week, and I think it's worth reminding us, is a picture of the flesh. And the flesh is always, particularly when we're feeling weak, right? When we're feeling isolated, it will sneak up on us and really do battle with us. And it's a battle on this side of eternity. Um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, as Jesus would say to his disciples. And we can battle the flesh and those fleshly struggles that we can have. And one of the ways that we can have victory, as Moses shows us, is first of all, as I was thinking about this this week, that as I see Moses with his arms outstretched, you know, and then on two side, uh, either side of him were those men holding up their arms, that up on that hill, I can't help but think, that it was a picture of the cross, of Jesus with his hands outstretched and then the two thieves on either side. And that's where we get our ultimate victory, isn't it? That Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, and he died so we don't have to suffer the penalty of sin, but also as we become Christians and surrender our lives to him, then he also frees us from the power of sin. As the Holy Spirit comes and lives in our hearts, and he will help us to live the life that he wants us to live. But there are certain things that we are to do, and Moses shows us prevailing prayer, just to be praying, and don't stop praying. It's very important that not only are we praying, you know, that, Lord, help me to live a life that's pleasing to you. Give me the power to be free from these struggles that I have in life. But also, it's very important that we have others that are praying for us as well, that we be praying for one another. Have a brother or sister that, that is, you know, coming alongside of you and encouraging you and holding up your hands and your arms in your journey in life and as a Christian. So here is Haman. We're introduced to him. And he is advanced by the king in verse 1 and set his seat above all the princes who are with him. So Haman, the, the one who we're going to see, as I mentioned to you, is a picture really of Satan. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate, verse 2 tells us, bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not pay, bow or pay homage. And then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. So you recall that um, that Mordecai, that he hadn't revealed his Jewish identity. But at this time, when he is, you know, faced with this, here is Haman, and the king liked him so much that um, he makes a decree that everybody should pay homage and bow to Haman. And what we're going to see is this man, Haman, is full of so much pride, full of so much arrogance, and he loved this. He loved it that there in the king's gate where the king's business is going on and where Mordecai is, is that these guys are bowing to him and paying homage to him. And at this time of testing, Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bow down to any man, any Amalekite, any idol. I'm not going to do that. I am Jewish, and I only bow down to the true God of Israel, the true and the living God. 
And so Mordecai at that time, he makes a stand and he reveals, you know, his Jewish uh, beliefs and his uh, Jewish, um, that he is Jewish. And, and I'm not going to compromise in this area. And I just want to remind us that there's going to be that time of testing that will come to you and to me in our lives to where are we going to compromise are we going to give in to the crowd? All the other guys are saying, Mordecai, why don't you just make it easy on yourself and, and bow down to Haman and please him? It isn't a big deal, and that way you're not going to get in trouble. But Mordecai said, no, I'm not going to bow down to any man. It's just like what we saw in Daniel chapter 3, or what you see in that chapter, that familiar story. You know how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, I am not going to bow down to your statue when I hear the music, that we only are going to bow down to our true God, the God of Israel that we believe in. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And here Mordecai is saying, I'm not going to bow down to this, this, you know, Amalekite. And I'm not going to bow down to no man. You and I will have that time of testing, as I said, that are we going to follow the crowd? Are we going to compromise? Maybe that uh, perhaps that, uh, you know, the supervisor, the boss, wants you to cheat a little bit or lie a little bit about this. And, and people are going, well, just go along with it. It's not a big deal. It's okay. But you know that God doesn't want you to do that. He doesn't want you to compromise or to sin or be dishonest. Maybe there's a, a group of guys that, hey, let's go after work or, you know, anybody, um, ladies as well, uh, a bunch from the office are, are going to hang out at this place and let's have a good time and and you know it's a place of compromise. You know that it's a place of sin where you're going to be doing things and hearing things and, and being involved in things that a Christian shouldn't be. And it's at those times are we going to say, listen, I am not going to follow everybody else. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to sin because I'm a Christian and I follow the Lord and I want to please him in my life. So all of us will face that time of testing, and that's why it's very, very important that as we discussed in our series, stand, you know, um, a call to faithfulness, that we are strong and that we are continuing in the priority of being strong in the Word of God and in prayer, and that to remember that He's called us to purity and holiness, and, and that we need to be ones that we're not afraid to reveal that I belong to the Lord. And I want to follow after him. And it may not be easy for you. It's not going to be easy for Mordecai as we continue to read here in verse 5. Um, but Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage. And Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So here's Haman, full of wrath. Again, he's a man that's very prideful. And he not only wants to get back at Mordecai, but he decides he's going to get back at all the Jewish people. I want them all destroyed. And that's what the enemy Satan is desiring to do. We need to understand something, that it is a spiritual war that is out there, that we battle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And that's why it's very, very important that we put on the whole armor of God, that as we are told that there in Ephesians chapter 6. 
And it is a battle on this side of eternity. And it will be a battle till the Lord takes us home to be with him. And in the meantime, the enemy, who is full of pride, who, who hates us, who wants to destroy you, come against you as a Christian. You see, he doesn't you know, want you to grow in the Lord. He doesn't want you to be serving the Lord. He doesn't want you to be a witness for the Lord. So he will come against you. And as he comes against you, he's not just going to stop with you. That's the thing to remember. It wasn't that I'm going to get this Mordecai, as Haman was saying, but I'm going to get all of the Jewish people. And that's what Satan does. He's not just going to stop at you, but he's going to go after your kids. He's going to go after your spouse. He'll go after your family. Um, he'll go after this church family. He desires to destroy the church if he can. And that's what the enemy wants to do. Now, we know that the promise of Jesus is, is that the enemy won't prevail. Uh, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. But he is doing battle, and he will come against you and not stop there, but against your spouse, against your family, against this church family. And again, that's why it's a priority that we be praying, that we be watching, that we be wise, that we're one that, um, you know, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. And here's the thing that we need to remember, to always be paying attention you know, always be watching. Don't go into the enemy's territory because he's like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. But we want to make sure that we're praying again for our spouse. We're praying for our children. We're praying for our church family. Very, very important that we're doing that because the enemy is lurking. The enemy is plotting. He is planning. Uh, in my own devotions, I was reading um, in Matthew's gospel as I'm finishing that gospel. And again, reading how, you know, Jesus was praying there in the garden and he tells his disciples to, to, to watch and pray, to watch and pray. And what happens? He finds them sleeping, not once, but three times. And you see, that can happen. And, you know, the, uh, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak of what Jesus said. But while those disciples were sleeping, what was taking place? Judas, the enemy. Satan had entered into Judas. He's plotting and he's planning. And he's coming with a detachment of troops that come against Jesus. You see, that's what the enemy will do with you and me. When we get to Job um, in a few weeks and we get to chapter 1, we're going to see that Satan is there before the throne of God. And God asks Satan, where you been, Satan? Oh, going to and fro across the whole earth. You see, sometimes people think that Satan, that he's, you know, living in hell and he's kind of the, you know, one that runs hell and all this. Satan's not in hell. He has not been cast into the lake of fire yet. That's going to come later. And we know that Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the God, little g, of this world. And so he would say, oh, I'm going to and fro across the whole earth. Have you considered my servant Job, is what the Lord said. And what does Satan say? We'll cover this again more in detail in, in a, about a month. But it was Satan that said, yes, I've considered him. In other words, I've studied him. It's a military term. It's a term that is, says that, like a general, how he would study the enemy. And that's what Satan was saying. Oh, I've studied him. 
And he studied you. And he will study you, he will study me, he will study this church to see how it is that he can get a foothold, how it is that he can destroy this church. And that's why we need to be watching, we need to be wise, we need to be praying, we need to put on the whole armor of God because there's a spiritual battle out there. And it isn't like the enemy's going to fight fair. Do you know that? It isn't like when you go out and you battle, you know, during the day and it's like, oh, you know, Satan, sorry, I'm getting beat up here. Can I go back and put on my helmet of salvation, you know, breastplate of, you know, of faith and all of this? He's looking for you not to have that on so he can lop your head off and come at this church if we are not vigilant. So here is Haman. He is determined, I'm going to destroy all of them. I'm going to destroy all of the Jews. And he begins to plot, verse 7. So in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur. Now remember that term, pur. It means a lot. And before Haman, to determine the day, the month, until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So here's Haman. He uh, takes this uh, lot and he cast it. And um, he is plotting just like the enemy does with us. As he cast a lot, it's in the first month, and the lot would determine when this plot that he's coming up with is going to take place. And it would take place on the 12th month. So here's his long delay, 11 months, which I believe is ordained by God. Matter of fact, we know that Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 tells us the lot casts into the lap, but every decision is of the Lord. A kind of a similar verse is that, you know, we can make the plans, man makes the plans, but God directs the steps. And that's good news for you and for me. We can plan, we can have goals, we can, and, you know, move forward in certain things in our lives and go in that direction. But the Lord is going to direct our steps. And Proverbs tells us that even though the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is of the Lord. And that's good news for you and for me who belong to him, that we can trust in what God is doing in our lives. And he's working here, isn't he? Already, uh, as we get into chapter 3, that we see that God is working in a very powerful, very wonderful way. Do you think that it was coincidence or just luck that Esther became the queen? No, it wasn't. God is working. And here we see there's going to be a long delay before this plot. What is the plot? Well, let's continue reading. Verse 8, Haman came to King Ahasuerus and said, There's certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's law. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. And if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they would be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it to the king's treasury. So here, Haman, he begins to come to the king, King Xerxes, Ahasuerus. He says, you know what? That there is um, this group of people. They have different laws. And he's given the indication that they're in rebellion. And um, they're scattered throughout the empire. And this is what I'll do. We need to get rid of them. We need to eradicate them. We need to put down this rebellion. And to even make it better for you, king, I will pay 10,000 talents to those 
who do this. You don't have to pay out of the kingdom's treasuries. You don't have to pay for this. You're, you're hurting as it is, and this sounds like, hey, this is a good deal. But notice here that he's not really being honest here at all in this. He didn't say that it's the Jews. He said a certain people. They're scattered, given indication that it's just a few people, not like three million of them that are throughout the, the empire, and some of them back at this time in Jerusalem because the decree had already been given that they could come back and they've rebuilt the temple. And we need to get rid of them. We need to get rid of this rebellion. So the king here, he's obviously thinking, well, this is no big deal. But again, this is what the enemy does. He begins to lie. He begins to deceive. And we see the response of the king in verse 10. He took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, uh, the, um, you know, the enemy of the Jews. Uh, he's a descendant of Agai. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. So the king is thinking, yeah, yeah, you deal with this. Here's my signet ring. And he has no real idea of really what Haman is really up to, who's being a deceiver, who is a manipulator, who's a liar. And again, it's a picture of the enemy. Listen, he is a liar, Jesus said. He's a murderer. He is a master deceiver. And he's going to do anything that he can to pull you into that which is deceptive and wrong, to make you think that, you know what, um, this is good for you or this is okay. And here is the king. He's thinking, you know, hey, it's just a few people scattered. We've got to put down this rebellion, and he's going to pay for it. That's great. The enemy is a deceiver. And know that Paul would write to the Corinthian church that Satan, that he is uh, an angel of light, you and I do not want to be ignorant of Satan's devices. And we need to understand that the way that we can keep from being deceived by him and, and being pulled into his temptations is that we've got to know the word of God and we've got to be surrendered to the word of God. So here is, you know, Haman being very manipulative. He's being, you know, very clever in this. And the king says, here's my signet ring, which represents the king's authority. And he was saying, go ahead, Haman, take care of this dispersed you know, group that um, is rebelling and has different laws. Listen, the, the Jews did have different laws, but they were not rebelling against the king, as the implication as Haman gives here. So here we see that this decree comes out in verse 12 as the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and the decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written, sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews 
both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. In verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. And the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed to Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Now, a couple things here that I think is important for us as we close this chapter. Number one is that the decree was made, and once the decree was made, it could not be overchanged. He was given the signet ring, which gave the authority from the king that the decree is now law. And under the Medo-Persian Empire, once that decree was made, it was, you know, the signet ring sealed that decree, then it was law and it could not be changed. And we see that clearly in the scriptures. Now, you remember under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar that in the Babylonian Empire, when Nebuchadnezzar made a law, he would speak it, it was law. And if he changed his mind five minutes later, it didn't matter. He, he could change it. He could change that law. And, and so he had absolute authority is what Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had. We see an example of that in Daniel chapter 3, don't we? Again, that familiar story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who would not bow down to the statue, the image that Nebuchadnezzar made. And he said, if you don't bow down, you're going to be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace, right? So these guys come along and they said, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to do it when the sound of the music. And Nebuchadnezzar became furious and he throws those guys in the burning, fiery furnace. He's down below in his portable throne looking into the, you know, the doorway to the, to the burning furnace. And he looks in there and he says, didn't we throw three guys in there? Yes, king, we did. Well, I see four, and the fourth looks like the Son of God. And he was amazed. And here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking around, and they're not burnt. Um, not even a hair was burnt. And they're fellowshipping with Jesus. And Nebuchadnezzar, he cries out, Come out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what did he do? He made another decree. He said that if anybody, you know, says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, then they sh shall be made a, you know, uh, ash heap and, you know, you're done away with. So in a few minutes, he changed the law and he could do that. Not so under the Medo-Persian Empire. We see again another example of that in Daniel chapter 6, right? The familiar story of Daniel thrown into the lion's den. You remember that it was the leadership there that, that wanted to come against Daniel, and they were thinking, how can we get at Daniel? They couldn't find any fault with Daniel. So they said, this is what we're going to do. If we're going to find fault with him, it's going to be concerning his God. So they went to Darius, Darius who was Ahasuerus' father here. When he was ruling, they said, Darius, we think that you're such a great guy. This is what we want to do. We want to, to have a decree made, and you sign it, that for the next 30 days, nobody pays any you know, homage or gives any prayer to anyone else or any other god except for you, Darius. And if they do pray to any other god, then they'll be thrown into the den of lions. So Darius, all buttered up, and you know, he signs the decree. They wait for Daniel. Daniel, who knew that the decree had been signed, he goes and he prays to his God. He opens his window facing Jerusalem. 
as was his custom, as chapter 6 says. You know, do people know what your custom is? What you do? Especially parents. Do your kids know that you're going to be in a place of prayer? That I know that mom and dad, that they're going to be having devotions and they're going to be spending time with the Lord. It's a powerful witness for them. And that's what Daniel does. He's praying as he always did all of his life. He's an elderly man. And these guys are, you know, watching this. And they go to Darius and they say, hey, Daniel, you know, broke the decree. You have to throw him into the den of lions. And you remember, if you've read chapter 6 of Daniel, which I know that probably most of you, if not all of you, have read that chapter. And Darius was so distraught. He was so upset with himself. And Daniel was thrown into the den of lions. And Darius was up all night. He was going through the books. He was trying to find a loophole, but he could not change the decree. So this is how serious this is. This decree has been made that all the Jews would be wiped out. God's people completely eliminated throughout all of the empire. And I don't think that the king knew that it was the Jews, a couple million of them, and that they're going to be wiped out and their possessions are going to be plundered. So the copies are sent throughout all of the empire. This is going to happen in 11 months here. And then in verse 15, it says that they drank, the king and, and Haman, and um, they're, you know, having a good time and whooping it up and all this. But the people were confused and perplexed. Now, why were they confused and perplexed? Why is this going out? Why do we want to destroy a, a, a whole race? You know, two to three million people is what's going to be destroyed. They're confused. And that's what Satan does. He'll bring confusion. Our God is not a God of confusion. But Satan does bring confusion. But also to understand that this is more than just a, a political revenge that, you know, Haman is trying to get at the Jews. But there's a spiritual dimension that is here. And we need to understand this spiritual dimension because it has implications for us today. You know, there are a lot of people that we have opportunity to talk to that they do not understand why there is so much anti-Semitism, why there's so much, you know, uh, turmoil surrounding Israel, why the, the neighbors around Israel, uh, those nations, want to destroy her. And we've got to understand this, folks, that it's more than just a geopolitical situation that's taken place in the Middle East, but there's a spiritual dimension that is there. And I want you to have some understanding, and a lot of you do, so you can minister to others, so you understand that, that the enemy Satan is trying to destroy God's people, the Jews. And there's a reason for that. Now, you recall... Back in Genesis chapter 3, and I'll read it to you, and I'm going to kind of run a lot of verses by you, and you might want to jot some of these down. And I hope to be able to articulate this so you can follow along and understand why it is that the Jews throughout their history have been so persecuted because Satan has tried to wipe them out. Just as Haman here, who is a picture of Satan, is trying to wipe out the Jews at this time with this decree. But you remember in Genesis chapter 3, 
in the, when Adam and Eve sin and there's the fall of man and the consequences come. And now, you know, there's a fallen world. Sin and death has entered into the world. And God, as he addressed Adam and Eve, he also would address the serpent who was, um, you know, the one who tempted um, Satan, uh, Adam and Eve, and caused them to sin. And God said this to Satan. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So a lot of you know that clear back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that is the first promise of Messiah. Messiah is going to come of the seed of the woman. And, and you're going to bruise his heel. He's going to suffer but he's going to crush your head, Satan. He's going to bruise your head. And so Satan, not wanting to get crushed, what he has done is to try to do anything that he can to keep from the Messiah to come. So we advance forward. We go to Genesis chapter 12, and there's a promise given to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant that is given. That Abraham... I'm going to give you a descendant, and your descendants eventually, as you become a great nation, is going to number the stars of heaven. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And the Lord said, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we see that promise again given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22 when God told Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, go to the mountain that I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice. So that's what Abraham does. He takes his son Isaac, he puts the wood of the sacrifice on his back, he has the knife in one hand, the fire of judgment in the other hand. They walk up that hill together and they get to the top of Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah there, he makes an altar, he lays down Isaac, on the altar, Abraham raises that knife. He's about ready to plunge it into the chest of Isaac. And all of a sudden, the Lord said, Stop, Abraham. Don't do it. Now I know that you love me. And Abraham called that place what the Lord will provide, right? What was the top of that hill? It was Calvary. Where has the Lord provided for you and for me? on Mount Calvary when he went to the cross and has provided forgiveness of sin and has provided eternal you know, salvation for you and I who come to faith. And Abraham was told in Genesis chapter 2, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul uses that to remind the Gentile believers in the book of Galatians that it is that Abraham was told that through your seed singular, that is through you, Abraham, that all the nations are going to be blessed because that's where Messiah is going to come, Jesus Christ. So we know that the Messiah would come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he's going to come through the Jewish people. We know that David, remember in David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he wanted to build that temple for the Lord. And the Lord said, you're not going to build a temple, but I'm going to establish a throne for you, David. And from your throne is going to come the Messiah. So from, you know, the line of Abraham through the Jewish, you know, um, you know line and through the line of David, the seed of David is going to come Messiah. So Satan throughout history on, you know, the other side of the cross in the Old Testament tried to do everything that he can to try to destroy the Jews. 
That's why you see in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh here, he, he makes a, uh, a decree, throw all the male children in the Nile River, get rid of them. So we have zero population growth. We see here in chapter 3, Haman, that he wants to destroy all of the Jews. Satan doesn't want to get his head crushed. He knows that the Messiah is going to come through, you know, the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That he's going to be a Jewish descendant. He's going to come through the line of David. We've got to get rid of the Jewish race. And so this decree comes out. He gets rid of the Jews. Messiah isn't going to come. My head's not going to be crushed, right? You go to Matthew's gospel. Herod the Great makes a decree that all the male children should be destroyed there in Bethlehem. So Satan tried to keep the Messiah from coming, and of course he didn't. Jesus would go to the cross. He would die for our sins. He rose again, and now we have victory over Satan. We have victory over sin and death for those of us who come to faith. Now, sometimes people are confused. Well, you think Satan would give up. Why is he still persecuting the Jews? This is what's very, very important to understand. You know, Messiah came. Messiah died for our sins. He rose again. Well, Satan, he knows that he only has a short time left. And Jesus, he said that he was going to come back. And promises were made to Israel that, that Israel's going to be restored, that, that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to establish his kingdom. And we know that that's going to include the restoration of Israel. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 3, I'll read it to you again. That is, Peter, as he's preaching there um, in Solomon's porch, he, he had brought healing to that man at the beautiful gate. And in Acts chapter 3, as he's preaching once again, this is right after Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 3, he's given the gospel again. 2,000 would end up being saved. But in verse 19, um, well, verse 18 of Acts chapter 3, here's Peter speaking. He's preaching to the people that had gathered after this healing. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So Jesus came. It was told by the prophets that he would suffer and die for us. So repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now stay with me, just a couple more minutes. Promises were made. As you read the book of Isaiah, read the book of Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, talks about the restoration of all things when Jesus will come back and rule reign from this earth. And it talks about the promises that God has made to Israel. And we know that Israel is a part of the restoration of all things as a nation. And God has made a promise to Israel that he's not through with them, that um, it's interesting as you look and put all the pieces of the puzzle together prophetically, that as you go through the books of the prophets of the Old Testament, that they came along and they would, the prophets talk about, hey, I'm giving warning, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you know, that captivity is coming, and, and you guys will eventually come back from that captivity. Jeremiah said that it's 70 years that Judah, you know, would come back from the Babylonian captivity. Daniel, at the end of that captivity, 
He would begin to talk about a future time, though. He would talk about another time where, where the sanctuary would be destroyed, and the other prophets would talk about that there's going to be a time when they're going to be dispersed throughout all the nations. So here's the absolute thing that's amazing, that the Jews not only went into captivity once and came back into the original homeland, but it's happened twice. And that's spoken of by the Old Testament prophets, just as Peter said there in Acts chapter 3. Now, you can go and you can read Daniel chapter 9. Again, I'll read it to you as I flip over there. And we've gone over this text, but I think Daniel chapter 9 is so important for us to understand, you know, if we're going to understand God's plan for Israel. And in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel, we know that God told Daniel, it's towards the end of the 70 years of Babylon, the captivity. Daniel's praying about that. Gabriel shows up and says, Daniel, I come to give you understanding, not about 70 years, but 70 weeks. And 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years are determined for your people, who was Daniel's people? The Jews. And for your holy city. Who was the holy city? Jerusalem. Now, at the time that Daniel, keep in mind, is receiving that vision from Gabriel, Jerusalem lie in rubble. It had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They were still in captivity. So he gives the prophecy that we talked about in Nehemiah chapter 2 that, you know, know that when they're going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 2, Ahasuerus, his father, Artaxerxes, in the 20th year of his reign in 445 B.C., gave that command. So know that Messiah the Prince is going to come after seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 periods of seven years or 483 years, and that's when Jesus came. That's when Jesus would ride on a donkey in a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, again, I'm throwing a lot at you, but stay with me. It's very important. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. That is speaking of Messiah being crucified, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Destroy the city and the sanctuary? I wonder what Daniel was thinking. The city is destroyed. The sanctuary is destroyed. But Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And the second temple would be rebuilt. And the end of it shall be with the flood and the end of it of war. Desolations are determined. So the prophets, along with Daniel, to fit into Daniel's time, that there's still a seven-year period that God is dealing with the nation of Israel. And it is spoken of the prophets that Israel would be dispersed among all the nations. Matter of fact, um, Ezekiel talks about that in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17, that thus says the Lord God, I will gather your peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered. Uh, Amos chapter 9, verse 9, that there's going to be a shaking of God's people and you'll be scattered throughout all the nations. But then in verse 14, that I will plant them back in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up. Even Jesus talked about that time when they would be dispersed across all the nations. And so we see it in Luke's narrative, Luke's gospel, chapter 21. In that um, version of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talks about that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. What desolation? The desolation 
that Daniel had just spoke about in chapter 9 that I just read. And know that those who are in Judea, you are to flee to the mountain. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. Let those who are in the country enter her. And these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled. So Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, talking about that the desolation is going to come. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, and that happened in 70 A.D., didn't it? When Titus and the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem. And then in Luke chapter 13, do you realize that Jesus wept over Jerusalem a couple times? And this weeping and lamenting over Jerusalem, that in chapter 13, if I find it here, that, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And willing. And see, your house is left to you desolate, and as surely I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's Jesus talking about? The desolation has come. You'll be scattered. And you're not going to see me anymore until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, real quick, there is the promises given to Israel. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 11. He says, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. And a time is going to come when the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Blindness has come to Israel. But then they are going to recognize at that time in the restoring of all things, at the end of the tribulation period, they're going to recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. You see, Satan knows. Why is he attacking Israel so much in the Jewish people? Why was there that, again, the, the Hitler who comes up and tries to destroy the Jewish race through the Holocaust? Six million of them killed. And through the tribulation period, why is the Antichrist coming on the scene? And particularly as you read Revelation chapters 12 and 13, why is there this attack on Israel uh, pursuing them, trying to destroy, you know, the woman. Why is it? Because promises were made to Israel that you're going to be a part and the focal point. There's still one more week, seven years, where God is going to be dealing with Israel. There needs to be a temple that's going to be rebuilt. There is the covenant that the Antichrist makes with the nation. There is, you know, the two witnesses, all these events and the persecution of the Jews and the promise that your eyes are going to be open and you're going to recognize that I'm the Messiah. And Paul says that in that day, all of Israel will be saved. Zacharias says that they, when they see his wounds, will ask him, where did you get those wounds? And Jesus said, I got them in the house of my friends. So Satan's thinking, if I can keep the plan of God and the promises of God from happening, then I'll keep the second coming of Jesus from coming, and then I won't be cast in the lake of fire. My time is short. So he's going after Israel. And that's why you see such a hatred for Israel today. You've got to see it through the spiritual lenses of Scripture, all right? And I've thrown a lot at you and kind of tried to put it together, but if you've been with us, it makes sense. So you have those nations that are lobbying, you know, 
um, missiles into civilian areas of Israel. That's why you have that the president of Iran and the leaders of Iran are saying Israel needs to be wiped off the face of the earth. And we're going to see that Israel and Jerusalem, as Zechariah chapter 14 says, is going to become a cup of trembling. So what does it mean for us? Number one, be wise in discerning the days in which you're living in. It's very dark in the Middle East today. And it's going to come up as a topic of discussion at work or in your family or to others. And you're able to give some wisdom and insight to what the Scripture has to say. That Israel is going to be the focal point. It is God's timetable. It is what God is going to be dealing with the nation of Israel in the last days. Daniel's 70th week is going to come. And he promised that he would bring them into the land. After 2,000 years, they became a nation once again. And that's why we see that Israel is the super sign. That's what we see, that the end time clock really started when Israel became a nation and those nations around Israel attacked her and God said they're not going to be plucked out ever again. They're going to stay, Amos chapter 9, verse 14. The vision of the dry bones, Ezekiel chapter 37, the bones coming together and their skeletons and the muscles and the tissues and, and all of that and their corpse and then God breathes life into them. And it's speaking of a nation that was dead that becomes alive. We are living in the days of Ezekiel. Do you know that? We've seen that literally fulfilled in our lifetime. And we're continuing to see prophecy being fulfilled. So number one, so you can be wise and discerning that you can minister to others. But number two, number two, that as God has given promises to Israel, you see there are those who say, well, Israel blew it. Israel sinned. They rejected the Messiah. So they come up with what's called a replacement theology, that the church is now spiritual Israel and has replaced you know, Israel and is going to receive all the promises. God's going to keep his promise to Israel. That is so very clear from the scriptures. And God has a plan for the church, and I believe he's going to rapture us out of here, and it can happen at any time. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church. He says, I come when I, you're least expected. Be watching, be wise, looking for the master's return. So we are going to be raptured, and then Daniel's 70th week is going to come, where again, He's going to eventually pour out his spirit on the house of Israel, on the nation. And they're going to open up their eyes and recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, in that day, all of Israel shall be saved. So that's why Satan is fighting against them. He wants to keep those promises that come into pass. And he wants to destroy the Jews. But he also wants to destroy us. But God wins. And God is going to come back. Thirdly, what it does is I realize that God is going to keep his promises for Israel, and it's absolutely amazing. People who say, oh, the Bible's not true, I say, okay, what do you do with Israel? How do you explain that? Not once, but twice, that they would go into captivity and come back. And the second time after 2,000 years of not having a homeland. They come back in their original homeland, that's an absolute miracle. And God protecting them from all those nations and this Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War and even today, God's hand is on them. And even the Jews, if you go to Israel, they'll say, hmm, when they came back after the Holocaust, they were like, God deserted us, just like they're going to say here in the next chapter 
of Esther. You know what? Where is God? Where is he? But God is working, and he's going to save his people. Now the people of Israel are saying, hey, maybe God, God is working because it's a miracle that they were able to win those wars, and God has protected them. So things are going to get really bad for them. Ezekiel 38, the tribulation period, the Antichrist going after them. We don't have time to go into it. But God's going to keep his promise, and he's going to see them through, which brings me great encouragement because people say, well, Israel's been replaced. God's forgot about them. No, he hasn't. They blew it. Yeah, I know. But here's the encouragement. When I blow it, and I'm not what I should be, God's promises for me, he's still going to keep those promises, and for you as well. Then lastly, then we're going to go to prayer. That the restoring of all things is going to come. And I can't wait for that day. When we're going to rule and reign with him, we're going to come back with him. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to restore Israel just as he promised. Their eyes are going to be opened up, and we're all going to be a part of that. Listen, your hope is not this world. Jesus Christ is going to come back. He is our hope. So let's keep our eyes on him, all right? And let's keep our focus on him, and let's be a light to others. And let's be one that we're able to give truth in this crazy, confused, mixed-up world that people are saying, what's going on? We can say, Jesus Christ is coming back. This is what's happening. Read your Bible. It's foretold. And the restoring of all things is going to come. And you can be a part of that wonderful plan that God has for you. So, Father, we thank you. We went over a lot of stuff, Lord, and, and, but the bottom line is, is that your word is true and your promises are true for us. And, Lord, I'm so thankful that we have the word of God given to us. That, Lord, knowing that our hope, our only hope, our true hope is in Jesus Christ who went to the cross just as the prophet said he would. And he suffered and died on that cross for our sins. My prayer, if there's anybody listening on live stream or anybody that's here that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, he is your salvation. There is none other. And today is the day of salvation because the Lord can come for you. He can come for his church at any time. That our time is in his hand. And we're all going to pass from this life. And Lord, whether it's we're raptured or whether our, our life comes to an end, we will stand before you, either cleansed and robed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ or as the scripture says, the second death, the second resurrection, before the great white throne judgment, where those who have rejected Jesus will be cast in that outer darkness. Father, I pray that none of us would be standing at the great white throne. And if you're here tonight, or if you're listening to this message, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, he is coming back. Our life will end. It's appointed once for man to die, and then the judgment. He is your salvation. Will you turn to him, repent, as, as Peter would say, and come to times of refreshing, forgiveness of sin that only comes through Jesus. And you pray right where you're at. Jesus, 
I turn to you because I am a sinner in need of you, the Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and you rose again and you're going to come back. And Lord, your word is true. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for me. I surrender my life to you completely now. And I know that my hope is not in this world, but in you alone. Thank you for hearing my prayer and help me to be surrendered to you all the days of my life. And if anybody prayed that prayer here or you, you, do, you did over live stream, will you call me this week? Or those of you who are here, if anybody by chance made that decision, will you come up and pray with me afterwards? But Lord, for all of us, that we keep our eyes on you, that, Lord, that your promises are true for us. And, Lord, that we know that the restoring of all things is going to come, that it's going to get better for us. And particularly for those tonight that it seems like it's dark and it seems like, Lord, where are you? That you are with us and you love us and you have a plan. And just as you were working behind the scenes here, and we'll continue, we will see that you're working in our lives for good. And if we can trust you with our salvation, we can trust you with our lives. So bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand? Again, if you need any prayer at all, I'll be here to pray with you. Travis is going to close in song, but remember Sunday, the book of John, come and join us as we'll finish chapter 7, move into chapter 8. Um, God bless you and have a great evening.